I would direct your attention this Lord's Day to our text, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. We will be addressing the the incomprehensible, unsearchable subject of God's divine election of His people. Recently, there were held several by-elections throughout the country wherein various candidates were elected to certain positions. Now, though the analogies that I might present this Lord's Day in helping us, God willing, to understand God's sovereign, unconditional election of His people, though those illustrations and analogies may not fit in every way possible, for nothing can really give us a that kind of a clear representation of God's divine election. Nevertheless, hopefully some of these points in these illustrations will make more clear to each of you God's election of you, His people. Now, in these by-elections that I referred to earlier, what I want to point out is simply the fact that the candidate does not elect himself. He must be elected by others. And only after he is elected by others will he be able to accept the office to which he was elected. And in a similar way, God declares that you, as children of God, have been elected to that place of great privilege by His own sovereign election. Now, this is unlike political elections in that the candidate in a political election presents himself before the people to be elected, whereas in divine election, the people of God cannot present themselves to God for His election. Nevertheless, the point is, they must be elected by God one other, not by themselves. Many people would like to read Acts 13.48 in this way. As many as believed were ordained unto eternal life. But that is not what the Scripture says. God, in His infallible, inspired Word, says, as many as were ordained unto eternal life believed. The foreordination to eternal life precedes faith. The reason that any of us believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is because we first were chosen by God to be placed in that favorable position, not because of anything within ourselves. While the doctrine of divine election, beloved, may bring high blood pressure and heartburn to some, and I can say at one time in my life, it certainly did with me as well, I can remember 
wrestling with that particular doctrine, tooth and nail, as it were, just fighting against the truth of that particular biblical doctrine, God, it would seem, almost pulled me in to that position where I accepted that truth. Now, however, by His grace, the Lord has brought gladness. The Lord has brought shouts of joy to know that there is nothing I can do to contribute to my salvation. That it is all of God from beginning to end. And I am what I am by the grace of God. Dear ones, if ever there was one who might have reason to complain about life's so-called injustices, to worry and wallow in discouragement and self-pity, it was the Apostle Paul. As we have noted in previous times about the background to many of these epistles which Paul wrote, Paul wrote this epistle as well from prison. Before having been imprisoned, he had been beaten. He had been stoned. He had been left for dead. He had been ridiculed and criticized by members of the church. He seemed to have to defend his apostolic authority unto others. Paul didn't have an easy way when it came to standing for the truth. And the Apostle Paul gives to us the same word, be followers of me, even as I am of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here Paul, as he writes in this letter to the Ephesians, he again finds himself behind bars on false charges. But, dear ones, the gospel... Though Paul is restrained, the gospel is not restrained. For the letter written to the Ephesians is the word of God which is sent forth from that particular prison cell to encourage God's people, to rejoice in the salvation which God has blessed His people with. And so Paul does not begin this letter to the Ephesians for the pity party, but rather with praise to God. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. He begins praising Almighty God for His sovereign election and salvation. Election by God. Redemption by the Son. An application of that redemption by the Holy Spirit. And at the end of each of those particular paragraphs occurs this refrain. To the praise of the glory of His grace. That's in verse 6. Verse 12. That we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ.
Now, as we approach this particular doctrine from God's word, we really stand upon holy ground. We, by God's grace, look back into the eternal counsel of God Most High. We look back by means of revelation as to what occurred with regard to our salvation and how far it is separated from anything that we could possibly do to make ourselves favorable in God's sight. God could not have put in language, He could have not made it more clear through these words, dear ones, that it is all of Him. And that we only offer back to Him what He has first given to us. And then when we offer it back to Him, He rewards us for it. All of it is of God's grace. And so we must prostrate ourselves as we approach this doctrine of God's divine election. We must prostrate ourselves before God and His Word. We must turn from our own understanding and lean only upon the understanding of God Most High. This truth is a revealed truth. You will not learn this truth through the human wisdom of man. You will not learn this truth by gazing into the stars and looking around you. You will not learn this truth apart from what God has revealed in His Word. This is a revealed truth. And so we must humble ourselves before God's revealed Word now. And I would say before we, one more thing, before we begin to look at the text itself, I would simply say, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any perversion of this truth is not the gospel. It is a heresy. Only those who adhere to this are adhering to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything else is another gospel which is no gospel at all. So our Reformed forefathers have in many councils declared that to be the case. This is the true religion. This is biblical Christianity. And the reason why the Lord has saved us in the manner that He has, we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is that man might not glory in himself. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26 says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. See, we are the foolish things. We are the foolish things of the world. And yet, in God's wisdom, we confound the wise. 
And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Why? Notice what he says. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Not of yourselves, Paul says. Not of your doing. Not of your faith. Ye are in Christ because of God. He goes on to say, Who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. The first point, dear ones, that I would make from our text is this, that you, as those who trust in Jesus Christ, have been elected by God. You've been elected by God. Notice from our text in Ephesians chapter 1, that the Apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear. You did not elect yourself. You are elected by God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You will not find anywhere in the Scripture where we praise ourselves where we give thanks to ourself for any aspect or part of our salvation, as if we contributed to it in any way. There is nothing. And all true Christians know that to be the case. I have never heard a Christian say, I praise myself or I thank myself for having become a Christian or having contributed to my own salvation. I've never heard a genuine Christian make any claim to that sort. You see, by nature, we know that to be the case if we are truly and genuinely saved. Paul begins that way. Who is to be blessed? God the Father, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him. He, God the Father, hath chosen us in Christ Jesus. Verse 5. This same thought continuing. Having predestinated us. Who? The Father. Having predestinated us. We did not predestinate ourselves. But we were predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Notice, according to the good pleasure of his will, not according to the good pleasure of our will. And verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. 
God could not have made it more clear to us, dear ones, that it is he who elects, it is he who chooses, and not we ourselves. This is also made clear, dear ones, as we consider the ways in which God speaks of salvation. We find again and again that in order to understand the analogies that God gives to us, we must come to the conclusion that He is the author of salvation. He is the one who has decreed it from the very beginning. For example, let me ask, does the creature create himself? Does the creature create himself? And yet we are called a new creation. We are called a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for new works. Or unto new works or good works. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. No wonder praise is not offered to the creation or to the creature. For we did not create ourselves, either materially, physically, or spiritually. We have been created. What part does the creature have to do in his own creation? He is brought into life. He does not say beforehand, I want to live. I want to exist. He is brought into being by the sovereign act of the Creator. Think of this question. Do the dead raise themselves from the dead? And yet, we are spiritually raised from the dead. We find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, again, that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know of any dead person who willed to be made alive and who was made alive other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, for He was God. There is no one who can make themselves alive. When the Lord Jesus Christ went to the tomb of Lazarus, there were many who were dead throughout Judea. And He could have spoken to all of them, be raised from the dead, come forth from the grave. And yet, He spoke specifically to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. Now, He passed over all of those others. Now, likewise, as the Lord God raises those who are dead spiritually, there are many, there are many indeed who are dead spiritually in their own trespasses and sins. And yet, the Lord God goes forth and He calls forth those whom he has chosen to raise from the dead. And one other question I would ask to illustrate this very point that it is God himself and no other who elects. Does the babe generate himself? Does the babe conceive himself or herself? There is not self-generation. We must be generated by our parents. We must be generated by others. And so we must be regenerated by the Lord God. And we find, for example, 
in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Verses 11 through 13. He came into his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, many would like to stop simply there. That we are the ones who believe and we would grant. Absolutely, we must believe in Jesus Christ. But where does the ability and the life come from to believe? We find in the next verse that this is not a work for which we ourselves can take credit as if we originated this work, but one which was given unto us, which we offer to the Lord God to be faithful. Verse 13 says, concerning these who became the children of God, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They did not generate themselves. They were generated by the Lord God, by the Spirit of God. The same truth is made clear in James chapter 1, verse 18, where we find this, of His own will, speaking of the Father of lights, of His own will begat He us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Not of our will, but of His own will. <clears throat> the Lord, when He, in His sovereign power and wisdom and grace, elected his people, in eternity past. He did not have any advisors, no counselors. Why, he didn't even take a public opinion poll. He acted according to the wisdom of his own counsel in accordance with the good pleasure of his own will and not a sinful will, but a holy and a righteous will. One which, unlike our own, can only do that which is righteous. Can only do that which is holy. In that sovereign will, a holy will, He elected us to be His people. <clears throat> and I don't know that we can make it or find a more clear attestation to this fact than what Jesus says in John fifteen sixteen, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you from out of the world. You did not choose me, but I, to the contrary, chose you. And dear ones, when you repented of your sins and turned to Jesus in faith, you only accepted the position of sonship to which God had elected you from all eternity. There was never any doubt. There was never any 
question as to whether you would become the children of God. It was determined in God's eternal decree. And there is once that decree has been made, there is no question or doubt that you as God's children will persevere unto the end to be conformed to the glorious image of the Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy all of the blessings that God has prepared for you, his people. Dear ones, not to believe that God from all eternity in his sovereign power and sovereign right elected his people is in effect to say, that we really can't know for sure whether all things will work together for the good of His people and for His own glory. We can't really be sure then, if that's not the case, that God will actually overcome His enemy in history. That He will actually cast Satan into hell. If God's eternal decree is conditioned upon man's will, upon the creature's will, then how can we be sure about anything? We can't. The Christian must cast himself upon the revealed will and truth of the Lord God alone. The second point from the text that I would bring before your attention this Lord's Day, dear ones, is that when you were elected by God, you are not viewed as a saint. God did not elect those who were already viewed as saints to sonship. He elected those who were viewed as sinners, as criminals upon death row, as his children. You were viewed in that manner when you were elected by God to be his child. As we've already noted, dear ones, divine election removes all grounds for boasting. If one is to boast, he can only boast and glory in the Lord. Friends, you can never pat yourself on the back for your election. You nor I deserve it. God did not elect you because of any good qualities that he saw in you. Listen, in fact, to God's evaluation of natural man you and me and all men alike. From Romans chapter 3, there is not one who is righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. And there, beloved, is our desperate, hopeless, and helpless situation as a mere natural man. We are fallen in Adam. We are dead in Adam. All in Adam die. All in Christ shall be made alive. In Adam we have died. And we have died because of our own transgressions and sins as well. We are dead. If you really want to talk about what is fair, because the objection of whether this is fair or not often surfaces, if God were to be truly fair, 
we would spend an eternity in hell. We would spend an eternity anguishing in a hopeless estate. Anguishing in pain and torment. Cursing and blaspheming God in that anguishing state. Absolute hopelessness. No hope of ever being removed from that estate. That's what we deserve. If God were to be fair, that's what we would find our estate to be. See, dear ones, this is where divine election and a political election definitely differ. A candidate for political office is elected, at least in theory, because of his qualifications to assume that office. However, you were not elected by God to be his possession because of your qualifications. Whether your character or whether your faith or whether your love or good works or anything of the kind. For when God elected you, he elected you in Christ. Notice verse 4. To become holy. Not because he saw you as already holy, but to be holy in Christ. And in verse 5, he elected you to become his children by adoption. Not because when he saw you, you were already viewed as his children by adoption, which would naturally be the case if he foresaw faith in you and on the basis of that elected you. No, he elected you to be holy and to be his children. Now, I have an illustration uh, today to present to you, again, to give you somewhat of an idea, I think, of the hardness of our heart, the callousness of our heart toward our God in his mercy and his grace. And it may at times, uh, in the course of this illustration, seem a little humorous, and it's okay if you smile, but I'm not giving it to you for the purpose of the humor. I'm giving it for the purpose of the illustration that, that I believe is consistent with our own natural state. Dear ones, you and myself are like, let's call this young fellow Glenn, a stubborn, insensitive 10-year-old who lived to make fun of a fellow classmate by the name of Jim, who had lost all his hair. Jim had lost all of his hair due to chemotherapy treatments. And Glenn lived to make fun of Jim. He lived to make fun of him by calling him Marblehead. Marblehead this, Marblehead that. Every time he saw him, it was Marblehead. Jim pleaded with Glenn, you know, don't call me Marblehead. That's not my name. You're making fun of me. You're ridiculing me. You're showing scorn for me. All that Glenn could do, or all that Jim could do, Glenn did not change. He continued to refer to him as Marblehead. Well, one day... As they were swimming at a pool together, 
and going through the same routine, routine, Glenn happened to fall into the pool. Glenn couldn't swim. He continued to fight against the water to surface again and again. And every time he resurfaced, he said, Marblehead, save me. Save me, Marblehead. And Jim said, my name's not Marblehead. Call me by my name. It's Jim. And he refused to. Even to the point where he could no longer keep his nose above water. And just as Jim dived in to rescue Glenn from certain death, when Glenn could no longer yell Marblehead because his mouth now was submerged underneath the water, even with that kind of desperate situation, Glenn, not being able to speak, raised his hand out of the water and act like he was flipping a marble, shooting a marble. Showing he wasn't going to change. He was still Marblehead in even that kind of a perishing situation. My friends, dearly beloved ones, that's our condition. We continue, apart from the grace of God, to call God, as it were, Marblehead. To show him scorn, even in our most desperate and needy situation. We continue to do so. Nothing would change our heart. Nothing would change our attitude at all. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, show to us the wonderful mercy of the Lord God and the estate we were in when God saved us. For when we were yet without strength, without any moral strength at all to rescue ourselves, completely helpless. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly, not for the godly, not for the children, but for the ungodly. We find in verse 8 as well, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you were viewed as a sinner when Christ died for you, dear ones, you were certainly viewed as a sinner when the sovereign God elected you. Did God elect you to be his own because he saw something good in you? Second Timothy chapter one, verse nine makes this very clear where our works fall. Speaking of God who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Not according to our works. Not even according to our foreseen good works, but according to his purpose 
which was given to us in Christ before the world began. And then that very famous passage in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. How can we possibly evade the truth of these statements which rip from us any merit on our part in regard to God's divine election? Beginning with verse 10. Speaking of the two sons that were born to Isaac and Rebekah. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger." As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Why? Why has God saved us in such a manner? So that he might get all of the glory. God will share his glory with no one. Let me ask you, dear ones, is faith a good work? Even if it is something that God gives us the ability to do, we can think of all the fruits of the Spirit. Love, is love a good work? Is patience a good work? Is long-suffering and gentleness and kindness and goodness, are those good works? Absolutely. We can't take credit as being the source of any of those good works. They're all good works. Is faith as a good work the grounds of our salvation? Is that the ground upon which the sovereign God elected us? This clearly and plainly says it is not on the basis of works which we have done. Not even on the basis of faith. You and I, dear ones have infinitely less room to boast about our election than Glenn did when Jim rescued him from that pool. Verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 1, again, makes it very clear that all the glory belongs to the Lord God himself. to the praise of the glory of His grace wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. 
The last point that I would bring to your attention, dear ones, from the text is that you were elected to be holy. You were not elected to live your life as you please. You were not elected to, to practice a licentious lifestyle, free of all constraint, free of God's word. You were elected to be holy. You were elected You were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our calling. This is our high and holy calling to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are in that process of conformity in this time and will be brought into full conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ, moral conformity, to the Lord Jesus Christ, not divine conformity, moral conformity, when we see Him as He is at the resurrection. <clears throat> Ephesians 1.4 says, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, and without blame before him in love. Now, I know that there are many who would object to this doctrine on the basis that if I believe that, I would live like the devil. That it's only the fact that I believe I can lose my salvation, that I have in some way elected myself, that my salvation is not secure in God and in Christ. It is only on that basis that I can can live a holy life. Well, that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that we were elected to be holy and we, as God's children, find that it is a powerful motivation and incentive to live for the Lord knowing how God of His free mercy has rescued and saved us to be His own. Your election occurred before the creation of the world, beloved, but its purpose is not complete when you first profess your faith in Christ. It is complete when you are conformed to the image of Christ. As we draw the sermon this Lord's Day to a close, again, I would like to simply illustrate for you in some small way the nature of divine election. This will fall short, I'm sure, in many ways to what divine election truly is, but again, look to the similarities. Five thieves plan to hold up a bank, and you are one of them. The local minister providentially overhears your plans. He overhears what you are plotting to do to rob this bank. And he appears in the room where you are, and he pleads with you, don't do it. 
Finally, all of you have finally uh, had enough from Mr. Goody Goody. You're tired of listening to him any longer and you decide to go for the door to rob this bank. But as you go to the door, he throws himself on the floor, tackles you, and you fall to your feet. And being the big man that he is, he sits on you and you can't get out that door. The other four co-conspirators with you make off to the bank. They rob the bank. They kill one of the guards. They are caught. They stand trial and are sentenced to death and are executed for the crime. And I ask you, whose fault was it that those men died? Did the minister make them hold up the bank? Did he encourage them to do it? Was it not their own sinful hearts and lust for money that caused them to do it? Was it not the fact that they would not be turned away that led them to do it? They have no one to blame but themselves for their own death. Even as we, as natural men, have no one to blame for our own spiritual death than ourselves. But you, you were rescued, you were saved. Can you say, I am free because I deserved it? I did not die. I escaped death because I was so good, because I merited it. The only reason you're not dead, like the others, is because of the minister who restrained you. Even so, those who go to hell, dear ones, have no one to blame but themselves. They are sentenced to hell for their own sin. They are condemned in Adam and they are condemned in their own sin. You see, divine election is unconditional, but reprobation is conditional. Reprobation is conditioned upon a person's sin is not conditioned upon anything but God's free mercy and grace. And so, dear ones, you go to heaven. You have no one to praise but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For God chose you, a rebellious sinner, to be his beloved child. Salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. Salvation is of the Lord. You'll never deserve it. You can never earn it. If you were to work a million years in a perfect state, having begun in a sinful state, you could not earn or deserve what God has bestowed upon you. Even Adam in that state in which he was in innocency, though he would have been rewarded with life, eternal life, he could not claim 
that it was simply all of his doing. God did not have to enter into covenant with him from the very beginning. And even in that state of innocency, salvation is of God. Salvation is of the Lord. Dear ones, to understand the doctrine of God's divine election is, in my judgment, and I believe in the judgment of the Apostle Paul, a mighty incentive to prayer and evangelism. Because apart from it, knowing the nature of man, no one would respond to us if God did not raise them from the dead to hear the word of God as it goes forth. If our prayers simply depended upon our success, the way in which we presented the gospel, no one would be saved. But because God is sovereign, because God saves those whom he has chosen we can have great comfort and encouragement that as the gospel goes forth, he will raise the dead. He will save his people by the word and the spirit. Well, how do I know that I am elect? Very important question. In Matthew chapter 7, These words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's not all of our gifts and abilities that we can offer to God that, it, that form the basis. It is God who saves. But those who are elect, though they are not saved on the basis or on the grounds of their good works, nevertheless, as a means of assurance and knowing that we are the elect of God, we have assurance because we do the will of God. We desire to do the will of God. There is at times within us a struggle within our inner man. True. But we know that we desire to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. And when we fail, those who do the will of God repent of their sin. They turn from it and they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Faith and repentance form, dear ones, as far as the good works which God has foreordained that we should walk in them. Faith and repentance become the foundation of all of those good works. Believing and when we sin, repenting. Belief, trust, which leads to obedience, and then repentance. Those are the good works which God has called us to walk in. If God can elect one like David, 
If God can elect one like Moses, like Solomon, like Peter, who failed God in many ways, God can elect we who are sinners. And God can be performing that work of sanctification in your life and mine. The last passage that I would simply leave with you, dear ones, is in 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1. Verse 10. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. God says, dear ones, be assured of your election. How can you be assured of your election? It's not something that is impossible to have assurance of your election. Make it sure. He says, if you do these things, what things? Well, beginning with verse 5. Besides this, give all diligence and add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Do these things, dear ones, by grace. And when you fall, repent and turn and renew your covenant vows to follow the Lord. By this, you make your election sure. God has given to us the revelation of this truth of divine election that all glory may be given back to Him. Let us, dear ones, glory in the Lord today. Please stand with me in prayer. O Father, we have heard from Thy Word that as the redeemed, we are to declare thy glory. Let the redeemed of the Lord declare so. Declare thy goodness. Declare thy mercy. O Father, let us not declare our anger, but hold and become silent when it becomes necessary, when it is our duty to declare thy praise. O Father, we pray that thou would open our heart and our mouth to declare thy wondrous grace and power. Father, we pray that, that these truths would indeed not be things that we would simply reflect on and say, oh yes, we know this, this truth. But, oh God, that they would live within our being, that they would well up within our soul, that, God, we would find comfort and refreshment and encouragement as we go back daily to these foundational truths in the Christian life. O oh, Father, we ask and plead with Thee that we would be a people who are given the grace to make sure our calling and election. 
And that God, in so doing, we would find great encouragement. Oh, Father, where we are weak, we pray, Father, that thou would at the same time give to us the grace to see our weakness and to repent of it. Oh, Lord, we pray that as we continue to grow throughout our Christian life, we know that there will be many changes, changes in doctrine, changes in growing and in, in reforming in our view in many areas. Oh, God, this is a part of being conformed to the image of Christ as well. We ask, Lord, that we, will not, that we as a people would not become frustrated with change if it is change according to the truth. Let us, Lord, be lovers of that truth to buy it and sell it not. God, we pray that thou would, would bless this day thy people. And we ask all of these things in Christ's blessed name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.